0: Peace, we Welcome back to the Alco's Mainstream podcast. On today's show, we bring the institutional family office perspective to private markets. We talk with Jamie Rode, a principal at Veritas Investment Management. Veritas is a single family office based in Philadelphia that was built on the rich legacy of the family, a major business family that spanned over three centuries. At Veritas, Jamie is focused on venture capital, private equity, and hedge fund investment sourcing and due diligence. She joined Veritas from Bloomberg where she held roles in both equity research and credit analysis. Virtus is an active investor in the venture capital ecosystem, leveraging a data-driven investment approach that Jamie spearheads to allocate to mainly smaller and emerging managers. We've taken a very thoughtful approach to asset allocation, particularly in venture, and have a number of valuable insights on asset allocation that have come out of that process. Jamie and I had a fascinating discussion about the allocator's perspective on venture capital and smaller fund managers. We discussed why Jamie believes that 90% of investment returns come from asset allocation strategy, why smaller funds often drive the best returns, why illiquidity and duration are so critical to producing outsized returns, with Virtus finding that the last 20% of the hold period of a fund often produces around 46% of the returns, why Virtus believes in the strength of the YC network, the perfect fund size and portfolio construction, and why former operators may not make the best fund managers in Jamie's view. Thanks, Jamie, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast to share your wisdom and data-driven perspectives. We're going mainstream. Jamie, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me here. I'm super excited.
0: Pleasure to have you on. You have such a fascinating background when it comes to investing into particularly VC funds across alternative investments and a very data-driven approach to investing in VC. So we'd love to start where... Your background intersects with this data-driven approach to VC investing at Virtus. So how did your background, particularly at Bloomberg, inform your work at Virtus?
1: I was at Bloomberg directly out of college, and that being a data company and being around, I'd say, CFAs and all different types of engineers and business development, I got exposure to a lot of different things. I think that kept me well-rounded. I had gotten my CFA while I was uh, at Bloomberg It took me down this more data analytical approach. But I think the biggest benefit of being at Bloomberg for the first four and a half years of my career was just soaking in a lot. When I joined Veritas in 2015, I was much more of a a generalist that allowed me to retrain my thinking into this data-driven approach that's been applied at Veritas.
0: What do you think was the most valuable thing you learned at Bloomberg that you've now applied to investing into VC funds?
1: I think the biggest benefit was having the ability to do the analytical research. But the last two years or so of my time at Bloomberg, I spent publishing equity research on the terminal for property and casualty and life insurers. I'd say that sector was not super exciting, but it was almost like posting this analysis on Twitter where I only had a certain amount of characters. So if I wanted to get my point across, I had to be clear, concise, and to the point. What made me recognize the benefit of saying a lot with saying very little
0: it brings up a really interesting point that I think we've seen evolve in private markets as social media itself has evolved but how do you think that the open sourcing of some of this information whether it's by GPS or by LPS has helped the industry
1: I think transparency is super important I think it was really interesting when I joined uh, Verdes we I spent most of my time in the first year and a half or so on the public market side where data is readily available and it's very transparent. Then moving over to the venture side of things around 2016, 17, where transparency was not available whatsoever, was really mind boggling to me. And it was very, very frustrating just to understand from a family office perspective what was the family's underlying exposure in venture? How much was at the seed stage? How much was in certain geographies? How much was in certain sectors? And we couldn't get any of that. And to tell us it's proprietary, even though the money is locked up for 10 to 15 years, blew my mind. So I think the ability to have this transparency, and I think there's more that's really needed there, but to build out a venture program that focuses on the seed stage, having social media as a resource to build out your network and identify funds is super helpful because I'm not sure how it would have gone if we didn't have certain resources like a pitch book or a CB Insights or even, I can't believe I'm saying this, Twitter to, to understand uh, venture.
0: Is there anything in particular that you've learned from social media that's helped inform how you've invested?
1: To be candid, I love LinkedIn for references. We do on-list references. And I think like most Investors or GPs doing background on startups off-list references, we've heavily leaned on uh, social media to be able to source the, the reference calls. And this is not just for venture, this is for any of the asset classes that we invest in. I think that's been super helpful even using social media to help market map. Before we go about investing in anything, like last summer, a colleague of mine led a European buyout market mapping exercise. Being able to rely on certain uh, publications or social media sources to identify certain funds and where they're investing has been very, very helpful. And that's all free. We don't have to pay for certain things to be able to identify resources to understand marking mapping of ecosystems or understanding GP relationships.
0: Well, not only have you been a consumer of information, you've also been a provider of really valuable information, particularly around data-driven insights regarding your investment performance portfolio that I think are really helpful to the emerging manager ecosystem in particular. So I'd love to dive into that. Let's start first with... Veritas and the background on the firm. would love for you to tell us a little bit about who Veritas is and what you all focus on. Sure.
1: So we're a single family office managing capital for generation seven, eight, nine, and now 10. Our mandate is to compound capital at the highest rate possible while the family can tolerate a max drawdown of about 10 to 15% on a rolling three-year basis. And we also have a 1.5% payout of NAV. And so that NAV really needs to stay steady, if not growing, because when we start thinking about inflation and taxes, cost of living, cost of of running a family office, that hurdle rate can can get pretty high, I'd say somewhere around 6 to 7%. So when you think about that mandate, and then when you think about investing in certain asset classes, and what is the proper asset allocation to, to meet that mandate. We've evolved that over time. It started in 2004. And when I joined in 2015, it's right around the time we became more data-driven to understand all the asset classes that we are investing in, in terms of what are their underlying distributions? What is their steady state return since we're multi-period investors, we're long-term investors? And then what is the max drawdown? What is the upside? That whole exercise that we did led us to being half on the public market side, which includes hedge funds, long only, fixed income, cash, and half on the private market side. And that's a third in real estate, a third in buyout growth equity, and a third in venture, where venture was multi-stage for the first 10 years or so and now is solely focused on seed stage or funds that write the first institutional check into a startup. And I think the last point I would just make about that asset allocation piece in terms of not just ourselves is 90% of your return comes from your asset allocation, not individual stock picking, manager picking, one-off call that you're making. It's about asset allocation and sticking to it. And that can be really, really hard to do because you wanna make changes when things happen. You wanna be tactical around the edges and make adjustments to juice your returns, but 90% of it comes from asset allocation.
0: That's such a fascinating point. From that perspective, how does that work in practice?
1: In practice, it's hard because behavioral biases are very, very real. And I think it also depends on the state of where the LP is with creating their asset allocation, where they are in time and what their mandate is. So for us, we're far removed from an operating business. We don't have capital coming in. There's a lot of family offices out there that still have cash flow coming in. So that can be very different. For us, it's creating the right mix of asset classes to meet that compound at a very high rate while having a small payout. And considering what the, the max drawdown tolerance is. And so it's understanding that over the long term, for example, public markets is, an, is a CAGR of about 11%. Buyouts gives you a CAGR of about a 14%. Early stage venture gives you a CAGR of about a 25%. Understanding the duration, the liquidity of each of those asset classes and combining them in the right mix that you feel comfortable with allows you to reach your end mandate. But I think it comes down to understanding the steady state return and what the distributions of each of those asset classes look like. And then that's how you end up producing a large amount of your return. If 90% of your return comes from asset allocation and you're choosing not to allocate to early stage venture, then the probability of hitting a higher return is harder.
0: On that point, how have you then thought about the venture bucket? Because I think you're unique in many family offices in that you're investing really in just emerging managers, which A, is harder to find. B, it's harder to allocate to, particularly with or without certain resources. So how do you think about the venture bucket of your allocation? And how do you think about the emerging manager piece in particular, driving that return to your point, getting that hopefully 25% Kagers, also thinking about the risk element of it as well, given that early stage venture may be more risky than other parts of the venture ecosystem.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. Our venture portfolio used to be more multi-stage and then shifting it to seed stage, or what I should say is funds that write the first institutional check into a startup, that is really meant to be the compounding machine for the family. When I joined in 15, it was about 10% of the asset allocation, and now it's roughly around 15%. I'd say sometimes the denominator effect comes into play, and it could be closer to 20, but that's life. And don't make massive changes based off of short-term moves. Remember, stick to the asset allocation. It has a purpose. And so we view that venture bucket as the compounding machine. We view it as a multiple-focused bucket, which is really, really important because When you're investing in managers, you have to think through the multiple focus, not the IRR focus. So for us, if you compound at a 25% return for 12 years, that turns into like a 14 and a half X. That's awesome. And so it's really important too to recognize if you have a 25% Kager or an asset compounding at 25%, the last 20% of time produces 46% of your return. So you need to be comfortable with the illiquidity and the duration of early stage venture and not look for DPI early. If you need the DPI early or, or you need more IRR focused, there's other asset classes. It's why buyouts, for example, their CAGR is a 14%. If you look at a CAGR of a 14%, the last 20% of time produces roughly 30% or so of the return. So it's more okay to get the DPI earlier or have a shorter duration. And that's the purpose sometimes of a buyout or a real estate manager if you need the money back faster. For us, Venture's the compounding machine. We target managers that write the first institutional check into a startup that tends to be emerging managers. It doesn't have to be. At the end of this year, we're re-upping with a fund five. We backed that fund when they were a fund one. To us, they still are deploying all their capital at the first institutional check into a startup and still doing enough deals and haven't raised their fund size where I would consider them to be more multi-stage. They're still generally small. So we're comfortable with that. I think it's just important to understand where the managers that you're investing in are investing in as well.
0: So much good stuff in there. I want to take the top-down approach first to get into this because there's things about emerging managers I want to get into and how you think about that and underwriting them. But I want to start at something you talked about, which is a really important point, which is don't look to take DPI off the table early if that sacrifices the long tail of returns. In the overall asset allocation perspective of things, how do you then think about and make sure that you're not having to use dpi early to then fund new commitments and kind of balance that because you to your point you don't want to take returns off the table where you don't have to.
1: Yeah, I would say cash flow planning is really really hard. I think a great parallel, this is not venture, this is buyout. When you look at our buyout portfolio in the earlier days, we only adjusted that strategy a couple of years ago. In the earlier days, we allocated to smaller, lower middle market managers. And we thought that those markets are fragmented. These managers can outperform. They have unique deal flow and all that. What it ended up resulting in, some of it's our own fault too, because we were lumpy in the allocation commitments, which is a problem, is that. Smaller buyout managers and larger buyout managers have very, very similar expected returns. But smaller buyout managers are more volatile. So their returns are all over the place. And that leads to volatility in your returns. And it's led volatility in our returns. So when I look back, some of the managers have outperformed and some of the managers have done terrible, which means investing in funds since 2004 or five has led to lumpy distributions over the history. So we've shifted towards larger buyout managers, which have more steady returns. Similar returns to smaller managers, but less volatility. I think it's really important to consistently invest in every single vintage year and to really understand the strategy that you're investing out of. Because at some point, you're just trying to keep the bathtub full. And to keep the bathtub full means that you need distributions from your prior commitments to fund capital calls for your future commitments. And so it's really understanding how you've deployed your capital over time and making sure that you have your expectations set properly so you're not stuck missing out on vintage which is a bad, bad thing in venture. You want consistent Vintage year exposure, especially in early stage, because you never know when the next unicorns will form. You don't want to end up missing out on certain vintages because you didn't properly plan your cash flow planning over the past 10 years.
0: I think that's a, a really good point for LPs to understand. It's usually when you skip vintages, is when you miss out on massive returns in venture because, to your point, you don't know which vintage is going to produce the outlier companies. I want to touch on one thing you said, but from the GP's perspective, you're saying don't take chips off the table early or too early from an LP's perspective. We're seeing the same thing happen from a GP's perspective, particularly right now. I'm sure you're talking with a lot of fund managers who are looking to generate DPI on prior portfolios, either from their angel portfolios or from their earlier fund vintages in order to show DPI to investors when they go out and do their next fundraise. In light of your comment that the last 20% of the duration creates or drives 46% of the returns, how should GPs think about this, particularly in light of fundraising?
1: I think it can be really challenging for GPs, especially where you see a lot on social media. If you missed out on your DPI opportunity in the last two years, you're screwed. I think it comes down to what are the assets in your portfolio? And we can take it up a notch. If you have an asset that's compounding at 35% per year, and you want to take some chips off the table, at a 35% CAGR, the last 20% of time produces 56% of your return. So I think if the asset is still compounding at a very high rate, and you have an expectation that that asset will continue to compound at the high rate, that it hasn't just reached its Terminal value and it's about to fall off a cliff, then hold it and compound it because the multiple impact is significant. Now, if that asset's compounding at 5, 10, 15% per year, then I think it can be a different conversation where the last 20% of time has much less of an impact on that ultimate multiple. And when you think about the opportunity cost, sending that back to LPs may be significantly impactful to your ability to raise a future fund or those LPs have the ability to take that capital and deploy it somewhere else compounding higher than maybe the 10% it was compounding at in your portfolio. So I think it comes down to opportunity cost and GPs do have the benefit of some version of inside information on that asset to know, you know what, we're entering the gray area. I don't think it's going to be compounding at a high rate, or maybe I want to take some chips off the table just because I'm unsure and there's a chance that this goes to zero. Let me take some capital off, but still leave some money in in case I'm wrong and it goes up to 35% annualized and, you know, that can be, a huge benefit to GPs and LPs.
0: I think that's a really interesting point, particularly when it comes to emerging managers. Based on fund sizes, sometimes one company can massively drive returns. You've talked about this in the past as well, with one small check returning a $27 million fund, I think it was a $75,000 check. I'd love to understand more about how you think about Finding and investing in great emerging managers.
1: I'd say in the very, very beginning, when we started to allocate to emerging managers, we did a lot of smile and dial. We did a lot of market mapping. We did a lot of understanding of the ecosystem. Now, when I think about adding new GPs, which we've backed roughly 43 seed fund managers since late 2016, and I'd say that's probably across 35 GPs, we always like adding new gps to the mix when i think about my re-up rate it's probably around 70 re-ups 30 percent new gps the outliers come out of the variance or they come out of the tails in ventures so it's always important for us to make sure we have diversified coverage at the startup level within the key networks and geos that we invest in so finding new gps that help enhance our own diversification and the network that we're looking to get access to is really, really important. So when a GP tells me that they have a proprietary deal flow or or they're super unique and all that, I only laugh because that's only proprietary if I don't have exposure to the network or the sector or the startups that you're investing in. So it's important for us to overlay that GP's network to our existing portfolio today and see, are you enhancing the network diversification? Or are you just giving me very similar, if not exact same exposure as another GP in my portfolio? And that's really what we do when chatting with emerging managers, if they've hit the hurdles that we're looking for in terms of portfolio construction and sectors and geos and things like that is, okay, I really like you, but are you unique to my portfolio? And that's super, super important to consider because if you're just doubling down on the same portfolio companies as another GP, why am I gonna invest?
0: So how do you operationalize that from, I think this is both helpful for LPs and for GPs who are trying to work with you, but how do you think about that from both the geo exposure, the stage exposure, the sector exposure, What does that look like in practice?
1: So we built a network graph actually, and it holds today our current portfolio and their top co-investors and follow-on investors. And it's weighted as well. We like certain GPs to front run some of the big brand names that we found capture a larger share of outliers. Let's call it around like series B and later, or a good example is we really like the YC network. We have a couple GPs that focus on YC specifically. We feel like you we don't need five of them. That's probably an over-diversification of that ecosystem, but we really do like the YC network. So we have GPs that have very thick connections to YC, and the network graph shows that and helps us validate that what you said is true in terms of co-investors and follow-on investors. I also want to comment that we do back fund ones, and so sometimes there's very limited track record. Sometimes we're not getting much. Usually we prefer a version of an angel track record, even if it's just a year and I don't care what the check size is, just to validate what your network is. But there's been examples where, and it's rare, but we've backed ex-operators raising a fund for the first time. And we were able to validate their network through reference calls or their ability to showcase us. If we had a fund, these are the startups coming out of companies that I've worked at that wanted capital from me if I had a fund. So it's really important to confirm their network and where they'll be investing. Just because where they invested in the past doesn't necessarily mean that's where they're going to be investing in the future too. And you can only... Do so much. It's not perfect. It's not a specific science. It's more of an art, but it's just part of our process to understand.
0: One fascinating data point on what you said about YC I saw a graph recently outlining all the different accelerator programs and percentage of startups that achieved unicorn status from these accelerator programs. I think YC from the 2010 to 2015 cohorts, over 5% of those companies became unicorns. So I think to your point, that's a fascinating concept when thinking about which ponds to fish in and what that means. I, I want to go a little deeper on how you think about emerging managers. What do you look for in emerging managers when it comes to really building an edge? I think you, you mentioned that they say we have proprietary deal flow. That may or may not mean something relative to you or to other LPs that they're talking to. To your point, everyone may have a different view on things. But what does edge mean to you in the context of a GP? and makes you excited about underwriting them?
1: I would say the edge that I would classify is understanding probabilities and the probability of success when investing in venture. For us, because we're targeting that steady state return and we're multi-period investors, we think that on average 2,000 startups per year get their first institutional check. 2% of them become an outlier. 2%. That means 98% of them are not outliers. And in our eyes are basically losers. Because remember, we allocate to buyout, we allocate to other asset classes. So if you're not getting me a fund with an outlier or getting me an outlier-like return or an early stage venture return, a 25% Kager, then to me, you're not doing what I'm looking for in early stage venture. So having GPs that understand those odds of success and then implementing that in their strategy. So if it's random, 50 deals in a venture fund times 2% outlier production rate, one outlier. Now we could adjust that when we look at YC, for example, and we do make adjustments within our model. If YC has a higher outlier capture rate I think it would be fair to stress a portfolio, which we do stress tests in the portfolio and run Monte Carlos and say, OK, if this manager is only YC focused and is broadly coverage in YC, maybe let's take the 2% up to three or four or five. How skilled do you think you are? Are, are you skilled enough to, to beat out the odds of failure in venture? And those are huge odds. I would never go to the casino and bet on some game if my odds of success were only 2%. So I think it comes down to having GPs that understand probabilities and the odds of success in early stage venture and implementing a strategy to maximize the odds of success while also staying grounded in early stage venture. So for us, we like managers that prioritize shots on goal and then ownership, just because ownership matters, but only if you're in a winner. So take enough shots to make sure we or you are comfortable enough being in a winner and then grab as much ownership as possible in that first institutional check-in because it's the cheapest entry point. As you follow on, you dollar cost average down your multiple and that's not something that we want to see. We're in it for the multiple here. I think it's really important for GPs to understand what their own venture portfolio mandate is and trying to have that align with LP's venture mandates that match it. I think it's really challenging to truly understand what power law and probabilities mean and what the steady state return really, really is.
0: To put some numbers to that, you probably saw the data from Vencap recently as well. 259 funds from 1986 to 2018, I think 11,300 or so companies, only 1% were fund returners. And these were some of the top venture funds that they've allocated to, et cetera. you're hitting on the point of power law. I think there's another point embedded in there that's so fascinating to talk about. You referenced it, which is reserve strategy. Everyone has a different view on reserve strategy. <laughs> I think you you previewed yours, but I'd love to hear a bit more about that.
1: My perfect fund is 50 deals and no reserves. I think that's really hard to find. And I would say that two key things of being an employee at Veritas means you need intellectual curiosity and you need to hold your opinions loosely. So when it comes to investing in venture, and this is something we look for with GPs as well, hold your opinions loosely because in certain market environments, a reserve strategy could be, okay, well, it's all meant to follow on into series A. Or in certain markets environments, it could be this reserve strategy, this startup struggling a little bit, and I'm going to do a bridge or an extension round at the same valuation and get more ownership and give them another 200K to survive another year and make it to the A. So I think that that reserve bucket, it can be okay to have as long as enough deals are being done within a fund that they have a probability a high probability of capturing an outlier. That's generally how we feel. We recognize that sometimes the follow-on isn't this clear-cut thing. I would say maximizing the multiple is what's really, really important to us as LPs. There are some LPs out there that are IRR focused or have so much capital to deploy that they can't all put it at the seed stage. And they're looking for more multi-stage focused funds. And so follow-on does make sense. Just for us, we really don't like reserves because you dollar cost average down your multiple.
0: How much of it is about dollar cost averaging down multiple, which also while doing that can also reduce risk from the perspective of a risk adjusted return, because you may have more idea that this is a likely success versus the funds that you've worked with have tended not to make as good underwriting decisions in follow-ons versus initial check-in?
1: I think what it really comes down to, especially because risk is very prevalent in venture if the odds of success are only 2%, but if you've built a portfolio construction that you're doing enough deals that the odds of failure of a fund are are low, So if you're doing 50 or 100 deals in a portfolio versus 15 to 20, a more diversified strategy lends itself to having downside protection in it. But comes down to the the opportunity cost. The dollars that you want to do for follow-on, would it be better off or having a higher probability of a better multiple in another seed investment versus that follow-on in the Series A? And what I really think about is... And this is why we tend not to back ex-operators is because they've typically been part of an operating business that was successful or maybe they were a founder of a very successful operating business. So they think that they can create this winner or they think that they can have such a big impact that this company is gonna be super successful and exit at 50 billion. When it comes to the follow on, I will say that a GP can confidently tell me this company is gonna be successful. This company has a pathway to profitability, to cash flow positive. I know that they're not going to fail. Okay, I can buy that. But can you tell me eight to 10 years from now what the end terminal value is? Are they going to exit at 50 billion? Or are they going to exit at 50 million? And that's what I believe that no one can tell me that they know when it comes to the follow-on is you don't know what the end terminal value is going to be. So choosing to double down on a winner when you don't really know what the winner's valuation is going to be eight to 10 years from now, I I can't fully buy into that one. And that's why taking those dollars and potentially investing it in another company seems like something to us is a, a better way to go about doing it.
0: What's fascinating about I think this whole conversation is that you've built out a really mature and sophisticated way of investing in a very, very challenging part of the market, both from finding, picking, and winning from the perspective of finding all the right managers and then finding the good ones. How should an LP who doesn't have the resources or the size of Veritas go about Investing into A venture and B emerging managers.
1: And I think when it comes to to venture, it's a really challenging ecosystem to, to break into and to be actively diversified. If that's a strategy that you're going for, and I think considering investing in um, fund of funds as a strategy to access venture is something that's worth considering. In the beginning days of, of Veritas, back in 2014, when the family office opened. We did not have a lot of GP contacts. Uh, we leaned on our own network of LPs, mainly uh, foundations and endowments to access these GPs. We invested in fund of funds in venture, in growth equity, really to build out our own network and get an understanding. And I think especially when it comes to venture and especially early stage venture, there's a power law there. And it's why fund of funds have the ability to Be successful in venture because the more deals you do, the better your return can be. And so fund-to-funds inherently are diversified, even if they target concentrated funds and only do five or 10 funds per vehicle. I think it's a strategy that lends itself to diversification. So your downside is capped. And it also helps an LP understand what the market is, become friendly with GPs, and start to build out your own network. So potentially considering fund of funds as some type of core strategy and leaning on them and doing a satellite approach of maybe some of your own investments on top of it at different check sizes can be an interesting tactic to consider.
0: You mentioned something which is important in early stage venture, which is diversification. You now have, I think, 35 GP relationships across 43 managers or so. How do you think about diversification? What's too much in the sense of, diversification or diversifying away your returns?
1: Never too much diversification. No, I'm kidding. I think what it comes down to, too, in terms of diversification is for us, we think about investing in venture on a three-year basis. And so every three years, we have a slate of capital that we invest into GPs. And so when I think about how do you slice that capital? Because we've gotten questions before is, Why don't you just invest in GPs that do 25 deals and you have a bunch of ownership and just do double the amount of funds that you do? Well, from an operational standpoint, my CFO would probably kill me, but it's a lot of line items to to manage and it's costly. Part of our due diligence process is background checks, it's legal review, there's references, meeting with managers. It's a costly piece of it. So I think for us, by targeting roughly 20% of the U.S. seed ecosystem, we feel confident that we will be diversified enough to capture somewhere near the mean return of early-stage ventures. Going back to my joking comment about you're never too diversified, if you went back and did every single solitary early stage fund that was out there, you would be guaranteed to get the mean return, which is significantly greater, five times greater than the median return, which the median return, I can go invest in public markets and get single digit high returns. I think over-diversified or under-diversified for us, I'd rather be slightly too diversified than slightly not diversified enough because getting a median return is not acceptable. That is not what we're targeting when it comes to early stage venture because that return is really not that great. When we refer to public markets, if you look at the Dow Jones, which is 30 stocks, and you look at the Russell 3000, which is 3000 stocks, the Dow is 1% of the Russell 3, but it's highly, highly correlated. I think the correlation between the two is somewhere around 96, 97%. So 30 stocks gets you highly diversified. Early Siege Ventures, power law driven, so targeting 20% of the US seed ecosystem to us, that feels like the right diversification to target that mean return.
0: How do you also think about doubling up on your winners? Many emerging managers often don't have the capacity to co-invest. How important is something like co-invest to you and Veritas?
1: For us, we're far removed from an operating business. So there isn't a strategic value add to doing co-investments, which we do find from a lot of family offices like to do directs and co-investments because of an operating business that they're still involved in. We're very, very multiple focused. So we only invest in funds. It's why we like those managers with low reserves. So we don't take any of the co-investments. I think that's really, really challenging to do. There's adverse selection risk there. That That's another line item management that I'm sure my CFO would really, really hate to have to manage. So we don't do them, but we do see benefits to LPs that have the capability to underwrite and due diligence those.
0: Interesting. That's fascinating because I think this gets to something more broad, which is that so many people have different strategies when it comes to early stage venture or emerging managers. There's no right or wrong answer. Obviously, the proof is in the returns, but there is no right or wrong answer. So I want to transition this conversation to something more global, which is some of the lessons you've learned and what the future of Seed looks like. You've now been doing this for a number of years with your strategy, particularly focused on emerging managers. What's the biggest mistake or lesson learned?
1: I would say going back to hold your opinions loosely has been the biggest lesson learned for me, especially when I first started doing all this. I was like, all right, this is the strategy and I have to color within the lines. And realizing putting that pen to paper. That's not how the real world works. I need to be comfortable coloring outside the lines and I need to be comfortable recognizing that not everything is black and white and there's gray areas there. So being able to be flexible and adaptable and just because a GP or an investment or whatever doesn't fit perfectly into what I'm looking at, you can use that as a learning experience. Sometimes some of the best calls that we've had um, have come from meeting with gps that i know are not a fit but talking to them about their strategy i get to learn about certain sectors and the last new gp that we added to the portfolio came from a fund that we spoke to that wasn't a fit for us. And they said, actually, my buddy is starting this venture fund and I think it would be really interesting for you and they're pretty diversified. Do you want the introduction? And they made the introduction and we're super excited about the investment and we invested. So I think that the biggest lesson learned is really just to hold your opinions loosely and don't have this inherentness to just say no because you never know what can come out of conversations or the the people that you meet with. But at the same time, do your homework, do your due diligence, and don't adjust certain processes just because you really want to invest in this GP or because the market's pushing you to get the deal done in a week. We've made mistakes. We're all humans and making sure that you've completed everything properly in advance and don't rush through it.
0: It's such a fascinating point to make because whether we're GPs or LPs, we're in the business of saying no way more times than we are in the business of saying yes, which is function of investing. But that's, I think, a great thing to remember when it comes to investing, because to your point, this is an outlier business, particularly in venture. Related to that, what we saw happen over the last 10 years or so was a market that was more or less up and to the right, different interest rate regime. If you were starting a VC investing program today at Veritas, what would you do differently than you've done over the past seven, eight years?
1: I'm going to throw my CFO bone and say prioritize operational reporting. I would say that's a piece of the VC ecosystem, especially in the emerging manager space, that I think is weak relative to other asset classes that we invest in. And I think operational reporting, especially now, it's really going to show up is super, super important, especially as taxable investors. We all have to do tax extensions because of K-1s. But if your LPA says they're going to get the K-1 to us 120 days after year end and we're still waiting for it in July, that's a problem. We've spent a lot of time institutionalizing emerging managers. We've spent a lot of time helping GPs institutionalize their LPAs, which I think could be a whole nother conversation because the LPA piece is a pain in the butt. And I think that there really needs to just be a standardized emerging manager LPA that would save LPs and GPs a lot of time and a lot of money that I could just check the box and say, this is some standardized LPA and we're in, and I don't have to worry about legal review, but I don't think The lawyers would allow that because they get to charge a lot of money, but the operational piece of it, the LPA stated one thing and now we're seeing the reality of it. And I think there's GPs out there that don't prioritize it. We've adjusted our process, but from the beginning days, not only just communicating it, but helping them keep it top of mind and educating to them why it's so important to be timely, and if you're not gonna be timely this year, just communicate that as well, is really, really important because it's super impactful when you start investing in more and more and more and more GPs. When we look at all of the private funds we've invested in, we've made over 200 private partnership investments. So having a handful of them report in a not timely manner is very impactful to us as being a fiduciary and reporting K-1s and tax reporting timely to our LPs.
0: This may lead into the next question, but what in your mind is the future of SEED look like?
1: I would say that the future of SEED is great. I always believe in innovation and strong growth here at the family office. I think that's a common theme here, but I do think that there's going to be consolidation among GPs. I definitely think that The piece around the operational reporting is is going to show up. The piece about the ability to manage your fund and multiple funds. Are GPs going to want to have multiple funds and, and have they thought about that? Have they thought about the operational piece of managing not just one fund, but five funds? And is it worth their time, especially in this market environment where it can be challenging to fundraise and you're going to see a lot of markdowns, things like that. But I think early stage venture is up and to the right. And I really do think that you're going to see constantly emerging sectors. There's going to be emerging geographies. 25% of the funds that we invest in are in life sciences, in therapeutics. I'm super excited about that sector. There's a lot of great science that's coming out of there. And I think that out of any of the spaces that we invest in, I think there's going to be more and more opportunity to invest in therapeutics. And I think that's a space that the whole VC ecosystem overlooks it's the only sector that we specifically target because most general tech funds don't invest in therapeutics nor should they that has a 10 percent outlier production rate it requires a different background expertise and knowledge but i think it's an area that requires education of the lp base and i think it's an area that has huge opportunities um, that will be coming down the line
0: so that was forward looking i want to go backward looking and I always end this podcast by asking everyone the same question, which is, what is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment?
1: Oh, my favorite or most interesting alternative investment. I can't say a specific name because then my compliance officer would yell at me and all that. But my favorite is Roy stage Venture, hands down. I'm a 25% Kager—that that is super interesting to me. And I'm very, very lucky that the family allows us to co-invest alongside of them in early stage ventures. So being able to put the skin in the game and back up my favorite area. And I think it would be weird if I didn't say early stage venture. I think that's clearly my passion. <laughs> seed stage.
0: That's No, that that's why I asked this question. So that people can say whatever they're passionate about. And it could be multitude of different things, but <laughs> you obviously are passionate about this. You've done incredible work in this space, data-driven work, which I think is so important, particularly on the LP side. You mentioned this earlier, but transparency is so important. So thank you for sharing all this wisdom and insight. It's been fascinating to hear this, and I'm sure it will be fascinating for everyone.
1: Yes, thank you. And I will say, maybe if I get lucky and end up getting that 25% Kager, then my personal love for watches can turn into my new favorite alternative investment. <laughs>
0: There we go. That's another <laughs> potential alternative investment. That is one that people are starting to build interesting infrastructure in the space. So at the very least, maybe one of your managers already does or will have investments in the watch space, and then you can parlay that into personal investment as well. <laughs> yes, awesome. yes.
1: I would love that.
0: Well, Jamie, this was fantastic. Th- thanks so much for coming on the Alcos Mainstream podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Altgo's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites. And you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at at Michael Sidgemore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going-